0: Well, let's have some fun today with, uh, I to, again, I'm a, I was a little shorter in preparation time, but I think I wrapped my mind around this enough to uh, be a suitable guide. Um, but I'm looking for your, uh, as always, your insights as well. So remember, we're calling this series The Shadow Side of Torah. And all I'm doing with that is studying passages in the weekly portion that I usually pass over because I'm interested in the, um, in the uh, primary narrative. But it turns out so far, and I think this is what's going to, that each of these sort of like, what's that about passages, once you explore it, is actually contributing deeply to the primary narrative. And that's what I'm gaining already from just doing this for a couple of weeks. And so we're up to the portion called Lech Lecha, And uh, uh, That is, starts on page uh, uh, 91, Genesis chapter 12. This, you know, we've been sending out this notice that this is the 50th anniversary of my bar mitzvah. This is my bar mitzvah portion. In other words, this is the Shabbat where my Hebrew birthday falls. My actual birthday on the English calendar is next week, and uh, so uh, um, that's why we're doing this celebration uh, tomorrow. Karen, did
1: you have to chant the entire yeah.
0: parsha? Yeah, I went to Jewish day school, so I had to chant, learn the entire parsha, which was hundred and thirty some verses. Wow. wow. And, I'm doing the first nine, <laughs> which I remember virtually, so I decided to make my life easier. It was, it was, it was uh, oh. hard. Really? So, how long did you give it Well, I was going to day school, so it, it, we started learning how to chant Torah in the fifth grade, and uh, uh, the boys did anyway. Um, I think the girls were off learning the laws of kashrut or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> the I don't know what they were doing. And in fact, at, I mentioned this at services a couple months ago. A woman named Ann Shamoon came to services, and she asked me if I remembered her. We were in the same class for eight years, or most of those eight years. And so next time we talk, we're back in touch. I hadn't seen her since 1969 when we graduated. And when we... Um, uh, uh, do talk again because we've been in touch. I want to ask her where the girls went <laughs> when we were learning to end up Dora. That's all, oh. you know. I was just I was just surviving myself, so it's kind of hard when you're. <clears throat> so yes, I learned the whole thing, and I made like nine mistakes, which my classmates were counting. Oh. <laughs> So it, was a, it wasn't a pleasant experience. Um, okay, so Lech Lecha is about the story of Abraham, whose name is Abram, at the beginning, Avram. And he is told, as we know, by a god out of nowhere, basically, Abraham is called to go forth from uh, your homeland, from your birthplace, from the house of your parents, to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So just looking at that uh, verse 2, the word blessing is used five times in that verse. Keep that in mind, okay? Something that, that, again, rule number one of all the rule number ones of Torah study is that uh, when a word gets repeated multiple times in a passage, that is the theme of that passage, okay? We're supposed to notice word repetition, and I'll repeat for all of us, that the English translations will frequently use synonyms to make it because it seems literarily dull, right? But if you were reading it as a poem, you would expect the repetition to be ringing in your ears, right? So it's one of the problems with almost every English translation um, that uh, that they don't highlight the repetition of words. Um, um, In the 1920s, Uh, Martin Buber and, or the 10s or 20s, Martin Buber and Franz Rosenzweig identified this phenomenon and did their own translation in German where they tried to translate it in the rhythm of the Hebrew. And then in the 70s and up right up till today, Everett Fox who is a biblical scholar who's maybe retired now, uh, Clark University took upon himself translating along the inspiration of the Buber Rosenzweig translation. And that's called, it's, it's the Five Books of Moses, his translation, and uh, it's worth checking out. I didn't bring it in from my office, but it doesn't read, it doesn't read as English in the way we're used to reading English, because he's trying something different, which is to get the sound of the Hebrew and the words that repeat. I just wanted to mention that. So, Blessings. It's in verse 2 and 3. The word bless is five times. And in this case, the English translation does reflect it. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and it shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will pronounce doom on those who curse you. And through you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so that's what sets the tone for the story of Abraham. His presence in the world. As our Torah understands it, is meant to be a blessing, not just to his offspring, the who are going to become the nation who emerges from Abraham, but to all the families, kol mishpachot haadama, all the families of the earth. And, in a um, uh, many of us modern Jews are, uh, you know, as we, the idea of the Jewish people. Being chosen for a special purpose, you know, we, that's problematic for modern, many modern Jews because uh, we also understand that humanity, it, we, we want to promote a universal understanding of humanity. Uh, and yet, to understand Judaism, we do have to accept that there's this sense of mission that we're bringing something to the world, that if we manifest it successfully, is a blessing to the world. And in traditional understanding, that blessing is the understanding and the awareness that there is one God, one creative force in the universe. Um, Now, along with that understanding of there being one God, is the nature of that power. And the nature of that power is tzedakah u'mishpat, righteousness and justice. Our job—it's going to be clear through the Torah—is to fulfill our mission that we've been, that Abraham was called to, and that ultimately Moses and the children of Israel accept as a covenant at the at the Mount Sinai—is to be to bring a, an order of uh, righteousness and justice into the world. And Abraham will manifest that, those qualities, in Abraham's story. Abraham will merit the blessing. Because the blessing is not, I've chosen you, and now you're my chosen ones, and you're the best. Right? The blessing is, I've chosen you to bring into human affairs the principles of righteousness and justice. So from the beginning, the Jewish call is a call to justice. And uh, it's pretty powerful when you, when you realize that. Uh, but it's all, and it's also consistent that we have a calling as descendants of Abraham. The part that I want to look at that I never know what to do with, and then now having explored it some, I think, I think it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty darned interesting. Uh, Well, let's summarize what happens next before we get to the passage I want to explore with you. So Abram and Sarai, his wife, they leave uh, their home in uh, Ur-Kasdim, in the uh, Fertile Crescent. And they journey to the land of Canaan. And they come to the land of Canaan. And uh, in verse 6, it says, They traverse the land as far as the sacred site of Shechem um, to a place called Elon Moreh, which is a really interesting term. Uh, Elon is an oak tree. And Moreh, is that somebody's name? Or does it mean the oak, or is it it the oak of teaching? Exactly. Uh, Torah is teaching, Moreh is a teacher, I hear that personally as echoes of sacred oak trees, like sacred groves. Um, but I don't want to, but let's go on. Um, and God says, I am going to give this land to your descendants. And then two verses later, <laughs> in verse 10, there was a famine in the land. And because the famine in the land was severe, Abram went down to stay in Egypt. One of the things that happens clearly, and that is part of the classic rabbinic understanding of Abraham, is that just by reading, everything that happens to Abraham seems to presage or preview or, what's the right word, Uh, uh, something that's going to happen to the children of Israel later. So remember, later in Genesis, the There's going to be a famine in the land, and Jacob, Israel, and his sons, the children of Israel, have to go down to Egypt because of the famine. And this is going to happen over and over. In the story of Abraham, we will hear things that say, wow, that kind of... uh, um, uh, that, that, that sort of predicts what's going to happen to Israel later. So Abraham, as this solitary traveler... He's not so solitary. He has a whole household. But he doesn't belong anywhere. And he's been called to a special destiny. right? So he's solitary in that sense. Uh, Abraham, everything that happens to Abraham and his person seems to be something that's, going, that's, going, that's, that's uh, previewing what's going to happen to his descendants as the children of Israel later. That's another factor that could be a whole... You know, hours of discussion to reflect on. Um, This strange episode happens. Look at verse 11. When he had almost reached Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, look now, I know what a beautiful woman you are. So when the Egyptians see you and say, hey, this is his wife, they may kill me and they'll keep you alive. So please say then you're my sister. Uh, so that it'll go well for me, and I will and my life will be spared because of you. And indeed Pharaoh claimed Sarai, and through her it did go well for Abraham. He acquired huge wealth. This is a very morally ambiguous story, one might say.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And then look at verse 17. The Eternal then struck Pharaoh and his households with severe afflictions, niggaim. That's the same word as the plagues in the uh, Exodus story. So once again, right away, within a few verses, Abraham is pre-living everything that happens later to the Israelites. Uh, It's an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? Uh, Also, when the Israelites leave Egypt... When the Pharaoh finally uh, lets them go, um, they leave with a lot of wealth. Do you remember that from the book of Exodus? And so Pharaoh is struck with plagues. And in verse 18, Pharaoh now summoned Abram and said, What have you done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she was your sister? Uh, so that I took her as a wife for myself. Look now that it turns out that she is your wife. Take her and be gone. And then it says in verse 20, V'yitzav paro anashim, that's the word for sent out, that the children of Israel are sent out also. Shlach et ami, let my people go. So once again, as you read these stories, I can't not look at this with you and not point out that for whatever the, whatever the mixture of reasons is that this narrative is here, one of the main purposes appears to be to prefigure what's going to happen to Abraham's offspring later. And uh, we have to ask ourselves about Abraham's moral behavior here also. Just sort of, not that I, I, I'm not going to pass judgment right now, but it's kind of Floats there, like what's going on here? He's getting all this wealth and he. Huh? Okay. Now in chapter 13 on page 93. Abraham went up out of Egypt. Once again, similar, similar kind of language, into the Negev with his wife and all that he owned, and Lot, his nephew, accompanied him. And now it's a story about how Abraham is very rich. Well, let's read it, keep reading. With livestock and silver and gold. And he kept going on his journey from the Negev as far as Beit El, Bethel. That's, you know, where the festival was. (laughs) And the house of God. And Bethel is also, Beit El is also where Jacob is going to go when he returns to the land up to the place where earlier his tent had been, between Bet El and Ai, where he had first built an altar, something Jacob's going to do later also. And there Abram called upon the name of God. Now Lot, who also had had done very well, and a quarrel in verse 7 broke out between Abram's herders and Lot's herders. Abraham, in verse 8, says to Lot, we shouldn't be quarreling. We are close kin. Here, verse 9, the whole land lies before you. Go whichever way you want, and I will go the other way. North, I'll turn south. South, north. Verse 10, Lot looked around and saw the whole Jordan plain. All of it was well watered. Remember, if you're up in the highlands of Hebron and Bethel, if you've been to Israel, the the African Syrian Rift Valley that the Jordan River goes through and the Dead Sea is in, you're up at uh, 3,000 feet, and down there at 1,200 feet below sea level is the Dead Sea. And as the crow flies, it's about, I don't know, eight miles away, 10 miles away. In terms of getting down there, you have to go down, 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 down. So you're way up in the high Judean hills, (coughs) and you're looking down at the valley. So this is where I want to point out that Sodom and Gomorrah are a crucial and central motif in the biblical uh, mindset. Um, They represent what we know they represent, which is immorality. Uh, And we'll look at some sources like gross immorality, the exact opposite of what the Torah instructs us to do which is how we treat the stranger, the wanderer, the, the sojourner, right? The sodomites do not treat them that way. Um, their greed overtakes any sense in... Now, we don't know about, this, we don't know about the sodomites. We're dealing with, like, um, mythic history here. When was the Dead Sea Valley a well-watered plain and all green, right? So there's a... I picture... I picture the, um, our ancestors living in the Judean hills with their herds and flocks, with sufficient water and sufficient food, looking down at that God-forsaken <laughs> Dead Sea Valley. And it would become a source of uh, lore for them. Right? How did it get that way? Hmm. And because Jewish lore, and is always got moral, um, a moral compass attached to it. They must have done something wrong. There must have been evil there. Right? It's not a, it's not a neutral story about the gods maybe. Uh, you could tell a neutral story, a morally neutral story, about how it became that way. <coughs> but I don't think that's the way of the Torah. So the story they tell about how once upon a time, it flourished and was green. <laughs> What went wrong? What went wrong is moral failure, in our Torah. Um, So they are looking down at the Dead Sea Valley, and Lot says, "That looks really nice. I'll go there." Uh, The the um, verse ten, Lot looked down, looked around, and saw the whole Jordan Plain. All of it was well watered. This being before the Eternal's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like a divine garden. Oh my goodness, what's the Hebrew for that? Uh, Gan Adonai. The garden of God. Wow. Um, Like the land of Egypt, as you get to Zohar. Like the Nile Valley in its greenness. Anybody who saw my slideshow of hiking in Nepal... And when we got to the, we were in a totally arid, high desert. And when we'd get to a well watered little village, which was green and overflowing with trees, and oh, I knew the feeling. I never knew, I never understood that desert oasis feeling before. That was amazing. So Lot chose the whole Jordan plain for himself and moved away toward the east. And they parted. Then each from the other. One, uh, yeah, please. So, in so the sentence that preceded this whole thing, related to our
1: conversation last week, so, uh, where Abraham is calling upon the name of the Eternal, and it says, uh, "There's like three times in that sentence that." Uh, so, that it would seem to me that something in, in the sound of that sentence would also alert one's ear. It was
0: verse four. Verse four, El mekom ha Ashera Sham Avram beshem Arunai. Oh yes. Sham and Shem. God's name. Calling out God's name as opposed to um, trying to make a name for yourself.
1: But now our ear is attuned to that. We just heard that a few verses. Thank you. Before that.
0: Thank you. Yes, last week we were talking about that. Uh, just one second, Burya. I'll repeat if you weren't here last week that no. it seems like one of the moral Again, there's always going to be a moral component to these stories. And the the people of uh, Babel were trying to make a name for themselves, and we talked about that last time, as opposed to um, glorifying the, the the holy name of God and letting God name... Anyway, yes, thank you. Buria? Well, I'm
2: struggling with this because I know the
0: area. You know the area. Very well. And... Uh there are a lot of shit note, a lot
2: of uh, water coming down the hills there that created, actually, the Dead Sea. And the uh, earth up there is salt, very salty. That's how the Dead Sea is. You can float on, if you like, on jelly. And um, I think that, uh, I'm sorry, God aside, uh, nature, Um, created this area there. And uh, because if you come before the, before you see the Dead Sea on the right, on the left, on the right you are up on the hill and there are big mountains full of uh, sand and salt.
0: Down in the valley. Uh,
2: Before even if Yes. And recently I read that there were problems with that shit That there was a flood in the area and the roads Flash
0: floods are a big problem when the rains come. Yes. Yes, because they pour down from the Judean hills in an area which gets about two inches of rain a year down in the Dead Sea and can wash out roads and people drown sometimes because everyone wants to go see the flash floods. Right, it's a whole thing in Israel. People camp out when they hear that there's a big rain coming in the highlands, so that they can see the floods. So go on.
2: So before you get to the area where you can see the Dead Sea, you travel through really beautiful areas in Gedi. Yeah, it's a beautiful. It's a resort and a spa, uh, not uh, not connected with the Dead Sea, but. Then you you don't anticipate this sudden fall. It's almost like you physically feel, if you're a hiker, you physically feel that you're falling down to the that sea because uh, there is something in the sand that the wind attacks you. Mm-hmm. And you're almost euphoric going to this small stretch of hill and depth. Mm-hmm. So it's very very powerful, and uh, I know that there are uh, people who say a certain blessing before
0: they go into that area. Uh huh. Thank you, thank you. The Hebrew name of the Dead Sea is Yam Hamelach, which means the Salt Sea. That's its Hebrew name. Okay. Um. So uh, we're on page ninety-four now, uh, which is we're in chapter thirteen, uh. So Abram stayed in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the plain, pitching his tents as far as Sodom, whose people were wicked, hardened sinners against the Eternal. Okay, So Abram has put an altar up at Beit El, the house of God, and called out the name of the Eternal. Whereas the residents of Sodom, are ra'im vechata'im l'adonai, me'od, extremely evil and extreme sinners against Adonai. So Adonai here ha, always has a profound moral component. right? To not know Adonai, when Pharaoh says, I don't know yod heh nor will I let the people go, it means that you do not recognize the divine imprint on every human being. Hmm. Because yod heh God makes the human beings with the divine imprint. In order to know God, you have to treat other human beings as children of God. That means treating them with morality, kindness, righteousness, justice, generosity. Right? It's a moral equation. That's what makes the Torah the Torah. Um, so uh, the sinners, the, the, these are the residents of Sodom who uh, occupy a, an archetypal uh, position of evil in the Torah. And, uh, okay? Um, so then in verse 14, and now Yudhevav says to Abram, after Lot had parted from him. Look around to the north, the south, east, the west, for all the land that you see I'm giving to you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants like the dust of the earth. Only if one can count the dust of the earth will it be possible to count your descendants. Get up and walk about the land, its length and its breadth, for it is to you that I am giving it. So here's the promise. Moving his tent, Abram went to dwell by the oaks of Mamre near Hebron. And there he built another altar, La Adonai, to Yudhebav. So that's what's happened so far. Um, it all seems to be setting the stage. And the stage is set that his nephew Lot has chosen to be down there in Sodom. And uh, uh, Abraham has been, da- they've been down to Egypt and back already, right? Uh, so, and, and Abraham has set himself up in Hebron, in the highlands, on, in the Judean hills. And now comes this really strange chapter uh, where a war is taking place and uh, Abram will be sucked into this conflict. We haven't seen him being a warrior up till now, but th- that's one of the reasons I usually just go, well, what is this chapter? But let's keep going. Yes?
3: Um, I'm, I'm sensing this going down into Egypt. Like, I'm very interested in what Egypt means symbolically, obviously, and there's so much there in terms of this rhyme and being narrow, it being a sort of unconscious place, it being a place of slavery. But I also want to feel like in this there's, there's like a distinct underworld sense and I keep getting reminded actually of like Orpheus and Eurydice or Demeter and Persephone where often it is this sense of a couple goes down into the underworld, the woman gets sacrificed sexually to the leader of the underworld, the man is then able to come up to the overworld and claim land, claim sunlight, claim talent um I don't know what this wow, so is. Wow, I'm so glad you
0: know these myths. I need to know them better. Well
3: the other piece that I that is in here that maybe people could shed light on because I'm not sure about, but you know, the whole thing with Orpheus and Eurydice is they go down into the underworld and then Orpheus can't he's told not to look back at Eurydice. And it's like Lot's wife, you know, and this sense of like I don't know what it is. Can we not look at our unconscious Feminine I mean, what what is that, the not looking back and having to sort of force oneself to go out into the light even when one has left, in a way, this very precious aspect of the self in the underworld?
0: Wow. <laughs> now, I have just one aha to add to that, not which is that uh, I just realized that the plain of Sodom was compared explicitly to Egypt in this passage. Right. Right, I never noticed Mm -hmm. that before. It's like how interesting that this fertile, verdant, you know, garden of God, as it were, is compared to, just like Egypt, you know. So what is this in the biblical mindset um, that that is that that Sodom and that the plain of the Sodom and the plain and the valley of Egypt have in common?
3: Well, we have to read it as a shadow side to some extent,
0: right? That's right. It's a shadow side, yeah. Yeah. Make sure everyone can hear you. Yeah. Yeah.
4: So I noticed something in the opening of this chapter, this parsha, that connects with this, I think, that I've never really paid attention to before. But when you have the opening where there are the repeated blessings, you will be blessing, your name will be, but people will be blessing. But then it says that Abraham, go, Abraham goes all the way as far as Shechem. Mm-hmm. And for people who read Torah, it's all one. And Shechem is the place where Jacob's daughter Dina, right? Dina is raped Dina in Shechem. is raped mm-hmm. there. Um, and it's followed immediately by Sarah being sold, basically, by Abram to Pharaoh. Oh, like, interesting insight. Uh-huh. And it's not just when we read Dina, we're horrified by the rape. We're also horrified by the fact that Jacob's sons come into the town and the men of of, of Shechem have all said, the prince who has raped Dina, says, I want to marry her, I love her. And he and all the men agree to be circumcised Mm -hmm. and to accept and become part of the Hebrew people, to be together and while they're recovering, Jacob's sons come in and massacre them all. Mm-hmm. Massacre everybody, mm-hmm. basically. And it's a real shadow side story. And to me, I was struck that just as in the paragraph that's talking about you will be a blessing, is this little, but, but, it's not going to be so morally straightforward, is it? Mm-hmm. Ever. 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 And then you have his Sarah being taken. And he's getting rich on this. And then you get to this beginning, the whole thing with Saddam and Gomorrah. So it, it's not as if, Shechem is at the very edge of the land that he's, ta- that he's being given, again. That's right. right. Mm-hmm. So even at the edge, there's the beginning of unconscious, deep, dark forces that never go away.
0: They never go away.
4: And I, I think the whole thing is set up amazingly. That's all.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you, thank you, And and reflecting on before I, I on the treatment of the feminine, as as you're saying, uh, that is the shadow side. That may be where the that uh, we have to reclaim it somehow as we interpret these stories. So keep that on. Keep that. Uh, in, in alive in our discussion, okay? Because I hadn't been thinking about that specifically as I was reading this. Um, thank you. Okay. So now there's this war. Oh, but I, what I do want to say to, to um, uh, Gail's comment also is I've told you that for these first few chapters, partials, I've been using this, this brilliant book by uh, Judy Klitzner called Subversive Sequels in the Bible. Any one of you would enjoy it if you're interested in Torah study. Um, it's this kind of very, very close reading. So if you don't, if you don't want to do that, don't read it. You know, but um, it's a really, really good book. So she is talking about Abraham being called and being told that Abraham will be a blessing, and then immediately finding himself in morally complex and ambiguous situations. Where he's trying to preserve his life, mm-hmm. and that so immediately as he launches on this journey, and then repeatedly, he has to make morally complex and ambiguous choices, like now in this war, his no goodnik nephew Lot, who he's very loyal to. Well, Lot's not no goodnik. He's just who knows, uh, um, who, But he chose to go live with the sodomites, right? <clears throat> now he's going to get captured as a hostage in this war. And Abraham's going to have to decide whether to ally himself with the king of Sodom in freeing the captives that have been captured from Sodom so he can rescue his nephew. So uh, Judy Klitschner was pointing out all, them, all this sort of like down and dirty stuff that Abraham's like dealing with. How is he going to keep his eye on the 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 big picture on the call he's received to recognize the one Creator God, so so in this episode, verse chapter fourteen. <clears throat> in the time of Amraphel, the king of Shinar, uh, Nimrod was the king of Shinar in the in the um, oh, that's right. in the uh, 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 Tower of Babel story. Um, speaking of. This is just so sweet, so many of you know, um, uh, wow, I'm tired, sorry, uh, Linda Kay in New Zealand. It's, it's tomorrow already in, in New Zealand, right? So Linda already listened to, um, uh, that was a was poor a little bird. bird. bird yeah. Do you want to check It's It's yeah. right at the base of this door here.
4: Yes? It's a but it's not doing well. Okay. It's, it may just be stunned. Yeah, yeah, they often, easy. they, they take of a minute, up. and yeah. they, yeah.
0: yeah. Okay, let's check on it a little later. Yeah. Linda Kay already listened to last week's podcast, <laughs> and then wrote to me thanking me, and then She's telling me... The no. Even though
4: it's tomorrow. Even though it's tomorrow. You know, but there's something wrong with
0: that. she did point out to me the reason I knew that Amraphel was the king of Shinar and Nimrod was the king, because she pointed that out to me in an email this morning. So we're studying Torah all over the globe. Arioch, king of Elassar, Kedarla Omer, melech elam um, and Tidal melech goyim. Now what's goyim? Goyim means the nations, like if you didn't know, Goyim, when you say the Goyim, it means the nations of the world. So these names are interesting and strange. These four made war against Berah, king of Sodom. What's what's Berah mean? Ra. Oh, evil. evil. Bera with evil. Oh, evil. Bersha, the king of Gomorrah. What's Rasha? Oh, yeah. Bad. So the king's names of Sodom and Gemara are evil and bad. <laughs> Shinav. The Melech Adma. What's Adma? It's like Adama? Earth? I, these names are very... That's why... Don't try to identify geographical... This is, we're, we're in the mythic territory here, right? Uh, and Shem Aver, Melech Tzvoyim. Shem Aver. Uh, if you look in the note, probably means my name has perished. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's an insult, probably. Or it's a, who knows, the Melch of Tzvoyim? What is Tzvayim? Tzava, Tzvaot. It's like ho- the hosts, the armies. I don't even know what. And and, Melech, and the Melech Bella, and also the king of Bela, that is Tzohar. Okay, so it's the four kings against the five. And these all joined forces in the valley of Sidim. Sidim is the valley of uh, uh, tar pits, which is in the Dead Sea. There are a lot of um, sinkholes in that area. And a lot, it's it. And uh, so it's down there, now the Dead Sea. For 12 years, they had been subjected to Kadarla omer of Elam. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. So in the 14th year, Kedarla omer and his allied kings came and subdued, and these are crazy names again, the Rifaim in Ashtarot Karnaim. Rifaim are the giants. These are all mythical peoples. The Zuzim in Ham. Who are the Zuzim? The Emim?
4: That's what we paid for the goat. Uh,
0: well, that's right. <laughs> that's Aramaic, right? Zuz, Zuz is like, uh, de, that's right. chagad <laughs> Who abba zuzim. My father bought for two zuzim. The emim in Shabekir at time, the Horites in their hill country of Sa'ir, as far as El Paran by the edge of the wilderness. So I feel like this Abram story, Abraham story, Abraham's story, is also dealing in like pre history like the time of giants and myths and when the valley of sodom was still a garden of god and when so i think i think reading this that titans and demigods and humans everything's all merged into this telling in a way that uh, was part of the lore of the time does that make sense everybody and it's mm-hmm. also like
4: the classic fight between good and evil
0: um, also, you know, but we don't know of, about the... king. Yeah. You know, of everything. You've but Shinar it. is the land of the Chaldeans, is Babylonia. And so they are once again making their way down through Syria, down to subject, subdue. This is part of their realm, and then there's a rebellion against them. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of, of classic kind of geopolitics echoed in all this, as far as I understand it, too. Um, but yes, good and evil. But I just mean there are all these these mythical sort of echoes and then the name in verse 7. Yeah. They then returned coming to a place called Ein Mishpat, which you could translate as the spring of ju- justice or judgment. That is Kadesh. Now we know Kadesh is part of the wilderness, but Kadesh is what word? It's holy. Holiness. So there's even this, on this mythical map, on this, this mythical landscape, there's a place called, it feels like a, it feels like a board game, you know, or, or the land of uh, Narnia, or, you know, it's that kind. Of, the Lord of the Rings, The Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Kings, though, it's better. The, this is all kings. So with these kind of names, there's a, hmm?
3: You Jewish Tolkien call it Lord of the King. <laughs>
0: um, so there's also a place called the spring, the wellspring of judgment that is in a place of holiness in this landscape where they subdued the whole country of Amalek who we're going to hear plenty about in the future and the Amorites who dwell in Chatzatzon Tamar some uh, the date place of uh, the, it, that's Identified by chronicles in the note as the same as Engedi, which is an incredible place of date palms. Um, okay. And then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, and the king of Zoarim, and the king of Bela went out and arrayed themselves in battle formation against the enemy in the valley of Sidim, against Khadarla Omer, and then the, the, the four kings against five. Verse 10. Now the valley of Sidim was studded with tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, they some tumbled into them, and the rest fled into the hills. So they, meaning the the, the Kedarla Omer and his crew, took all the possessions of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and their food, and they went off. And as they went off, they took Lot, Abram's nephew, with his possessions for he was a resident of Sodom. Lot has now been um, is a, cap- is, is a is a captive of the war. A fugitive then came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oak trees of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner, who are allied to Abraham by treaty. Okay, so first of all, I want to point out that this is one of the first times that Abraham is identified as a Hebrew. And there's a lot of, of course, there's, of course this has happened. When People explore, when is Abraham identified as a Hebrew? And when is the word Ivri, Hebrew, used to identify? And it, it's a fascinating thing because Ivri in Hebrew, whatever its etymological origins, we're not sure Uh, is one who crosses over or who stands apart. May aver on the other side. And so there's a lot of commentary (coughs) that identifies what makes Abram a Hebrew is his willingness to stand apart. Hmm. To hear the call and leave his (coughs) birthplace, his parents' home, his homeland, and be a you might say, boundary crosser. So I just want to also put that into the mix of when this word Hebrew gets used. Yes, Gail?
4: So in terms of what Marco was saying, it's also one who crosses over
2: into the yeah. underworld.
0: Mm-hmm. Right? One who crosses over, who can cross over between back. back and forth between the underworld and here, or who also touches over into the realm of the divine. Yes. Yes. Um, so uh, someone who's willing to take the journey. Right. That would be someone who's willing to take the journey and, and be, you know, when um, in the, in the uh, story of Esther, in the scroll of Esther, um, Haman says to uh, the king, there is a people among you that dwells apart, that doesn't follow the ways of all the other people. And they are a danger to you. Right? Just like when Pharaoh takes note of um, what does he call them? Let me just check. I wonder if it's Ivrim there. Uh, when Pharaoh says, as we were studying at the beginning of Exodus last week, um, and says, uh, no, he calls them the children of Israel. Uh, and uh, They are much too numerous for us, you know, so a people apart. Um,
4: I think that word is in there, though, because I just recently reread the beginning of Exodus because I was working on it with a student, and I'm pretty sure I saw it
0: in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm sure it's in there somewhere. I'm going to look into that. Rob? I just going to say, you know,
5: Abraham the Hebrew is tying back into what we discussed last week, which is all about naming. way that names are a way of defining people. and The, the other thing is that people who are building the power of Babel were also doing the same thing that you were just describing, right? They're, uh, they're setting themselves, in a way they're setting themselves apart, or well, they're setting themselves apart in, in not a good way, right? By speaking one language and building this sort of uniform right. uh, ladder to God, if you want to call it. You know? Anyway,
0: Thank you. No, these insights are exactly what enriches our yeah. take on the text. So now we're on page 96. And this fugitive has come to Abram, and I also want to point out oh at the end of verse 13 which is that at the oak grove Eshkol, Aner and Mamre are in a brit with Abraham. They're in a covenant. With Abraham, okay. So just keep that in mind because God is going to make a breach later with Abraham. Uh, so Abraham, as Judy Klitz to point out, is in some ways inevitably also enmeshed in human covenants and treaties, and uh, that's the nature of things: is that we're always like trying to discern our way to our tre- our covenant with God through all of our other lo- lo- loyalties and commitments and. Uh, um, people were beholden to. Hearing that his kinsmen had been taken captive, Abram mustered his retainers. Now the Hebrew word for retainers is chanichav. Anybody ever go to a Jewish camp, you know what chanichim are? A chanich? Yeah. Hmm? What is it? Is it's an, an educator. An educator. Or trainer. A, tra- a, chan- a trainer or a trainee. So these are, the literal translation would be Abraham's trainees, his disciples, his students, which leads again to a, a, a kind of a goldmine of commentary about who was, who was in Abram's household. Because the traditional take is that Abram was bringing people into the awareness of the one God. And so if you became part of Abram's household, you were one of his students as much as uh, uh, anything else. And that's a fascinating choice of word here. Uh, Born into his household, 318 of them. Why is this number recognized? Well, our editor of this book, uh, uh, Rabbi Plout, loves numbers and points out that 318 is 7 times 7 times 7. And you know we've talked enough about numbers to know that that that's pretty damn meaningful. <laughs> that Abraham's household is 7 times 7 times 7. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a holy, holy number. The other tradition about it is that Abraham's servant Eliezer, the name Eliezer adds up to 318. Mm. So I read that one too. So take all of that and and where are they going? They're going in pursuit as far as Don. Okay, Don is a place. Right? The tribe of Don. But what does Don mean? Justice. Justice, judgment. Remember Yom Kippur is called Yom Hadin. One who is a Don is a judge. So again, this is a mythic landscape. We've got this wellspring of justice in the land of holiness. And now we're pursuing the, um, the uh, people who've taken hostages as far as the place of judgment. Okay. At night, he deployed his forces, um, himself and his forces against them, and defeated them, pursuing them as far as Chovah, north of Damascus. Wow, that's far. Uh, wherever, and uh, Chovah is an interesting name, too, because Chovah chova, chova in Hebrew is an um, obligation. If you're Chayav, it means you are obligated to perform a mitzvah. And until you, do, until you, are, until you perform the mitzvah, then you're called Yotzei, which means you are released from that obligation. Um, he then brought back all the possessions all the, all the Rachush, His nephew, Lot, too, and his possessions. And he restored the women and the other people. So there we get women mentioned, the women who'd been taken as war booty. Uh, so, so Abraham has rescued his nephew as well as all the possessions and women of the, of the kingdom of Sodom. This is fascinating. It's almost like In order to rescue his nephew, he was willing to um, go ahead and rescue Sodom as well. Well, think about it. He's willing to rescue Sodom a few chapters from now, if there's any innocent people in it. So Abraham is a pretty interesting character here. Um, And then the king of Sodom came out to meet him after his return to the Valley of Shaveh, that is, the Valley of the King. That's so interesting. You know what Shaveh means? Equal, Equal shivayon, parody. Shaveh is an important word of fairness. So again, we've got judgment, fairness. It's fascinating to me. Um, and then, so the King of Sodom comes out to meet him. And we are now at this moment when Abraham is going to meet the king of Sodom, And then it's almost like there's this, look what happens. And this is what got me started on this whole passage. Now, Malki the king of Shalem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. Who is this guy? We never hear of him again in the Torah. Um, And he was a priest of God Most High and blessed Abraham, saying, Baruch Avram, blessed be Abram, by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth. And blessed is God Most High who has given your foes into your hands. By then he, our translator, thinks it's Abram, but it's not clear. Mm-hmm. Gave him a tenth, um, uh, a tithe, a tenth of everything. Ma'aser Mikol. Is it Abram then giving Malchitek a tenth of all the loot booty that had been restored? Or is Malchitek giving him a tenth of everything? I don't know. Right, so it's ambiguous. It's really ambiguous, and a translator has to decide. Mm. But the Hebrew is not remotely clear.
5: Jonathan, yeah. is a shalem similar to shalom? Yeah. yeah.
0: The name is yeah. shalem. shalem,
4: right?
0: Uh, peace or wholeness, uh, and um, interestingly, in uh, let me get the right place. Uh, in Psalm 76, it says, God has made himself known in Judah, his name great in Israel. Shalem will be his abode, Zion his dwelling place. So is Shalem another word for Yerushalayim? Uh, because Jerusalem is known as the, as the Ir Shalem, the City of Peace. So there's some. I'm almost sure that we're supposed to hear Jerusalem in this in this name. And what kind of name is Malki Tzedek? What does Malki Tzedek mean? Malki Tzedek. It sounds like king my, king, my king, my king righteous. is righteousness. Right. My king is righteousness. Or my king is righteous. Right. Malchit Mal-ki Tzedek. King, right. And
2: Shalom.
0: And, right. He, and Shalom, right. right. And, and Malchit Tzedek is not only the king of Shalem, he is also a Kohen, right. Right. a priest to El Elyon, the God Most High. They haven't heard that name before.
4: So he's, he's not mentioned again in the Torah, but isn't he mentioned later in the Old Testament?
0: He's mentioned later in the New Testament. In
4: the New Testament, because I know in the Catholic Church, when a priest is ordained, he's ordained a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek.
0: According to the order of Melchizedek. Yeah. Melchizedek, who is uh-huh. only mentioned here, occupies an incredibly large space, especially in Christianity. Yeah. Uh-huh. Because... Malchiteek is clearly a servant of the Most High before there's a Jewish people. So for the first interpreters, Christian interpreters of Judaism, they want to talk about Malchiizedek, because Jesus is Melchiteek. Yeah. The king of righteousness, who is the king of Salem, right the king of the king of. So Malchiteek becomes associated in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament with. Jesus. And the order of Melchizedek is an order that therefore makes the Jews sort of um, um, obsolete or irrelevant. And so, yes. What is that phrase again?
4: You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. A so priest, even if they're kicked out, they're still really a priest. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, you mean when in the Catholic Church? They're in the Catholic Church. When, someone's, when, when a priest becomes ordained, mm-hmm. no. they are told...
4: You're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And even if they're kicked out of the priesthood and excommunicated, they're still a priest.
0: So even you, if, you, if you're defrocked, you're, you never lose that. Right. Wow. That's, that's a good deal.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Supreme Court justice. Yeah,
0: just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Supreme, Court, Supreme Court justice. Tenure for life. Yeah. Um, so, so, so uh, yes?
4: So just returning to the text, he has not fought in the war. Shalem. It appears for the
0: first time here. Yeah. Appears out of nowhere. Out of nowhere. Okay. This appears out of nowhere. So in now there is another mention of Malkitzedek in the Psalms. One mention, but not as a proper name. It's very interesting. Uh, Let me find it here. Um, uh, The Lord will stretch forth from Zion your mighty scepter, and hold sway. Over your enemies, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. Uh, you are a priest forever, Kohen le Olam, ba, by my decree, Malki Tzedek, a king, a rightful king, or a king of righteousness. So actually, this is a mention of Malki Tzedek, um, but we don't know. We don't know the context. We don't know what Malki Tzedek represented and where else Melchizedek might have been talked about. Remember, we're in the land of story, and Melchizedek was probably a figure, again, of a kind of a mythic figure in these stories. But he's both a king of righteousness and a priest of God Most High. Now, remember, we're at the beginning of the story. Uh, Abram's just gotten the call. Now, there's somebody out there who's already a priest of God Most high and maker of heaven and earth and a king my whose name a king whose name is my king is is, is righteousness my ruler is sovereign is righteousness it's cool isn't it so
5: who's blessing abraham
0: who's blessing abraham at a higher mhm level mm-hmm. i don't know what muketek is in in uh, does Monkey Tzedek make an appearance in Tarot or in in, uh, in, in Tarot or in a cult that you're familiar with? It's interesting. So, but in Christian stuff, Christian mysticism and Christian lore, Malki Tzedek's a big deal. Um, in Jewish lore, not so much. No. So, the way Judy Klitschner describes it, which I like, is picture. Well, I'll discover it in my her metaphor, but now it goes in my picture. A, um, a, a, a cinematically, <laughs> here comes the king of Sodom out to greet Abraham. We are at a fateful moment. They freeze. The whole frame freezes. Abram turns around and hears, like, what? Malkitsedek offering <laughs> bread and wine and blessing from God, the Most High, maker of heaven and earth. And then you'll see in the next verse, in 21, the king of Sodom now said to Abram. So this is some kind of divine intervention here. (laughs) Where is it happening in Abram's... Not that it matters. You know, I gave it cinematically. But maybe Abraham is having an internal experience. What do you think, Karen? I'm
1: just reminded of the scene later, much later on
0: where the angels come, right? The word for angels is... Malach. Which is related to Melech. And he
1: runs to get the bread and the wine. That's
0: there's something about That's that. That's right.
1: He has this relationship, obviously, that now we're seeing has an earlier um, origin.
0: Right. This is presaging. This is presaging, um, this is presaging <coughs> what, when Abraham, in chapter 18, after Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed, is sitting in the heat of the day in the entrance of his tent. More. and in Mamre, same place, this holy grove, and three angels are coming to him, and he runs to greet them and uh, feeds them. No, it's before Sodom is destroyed, I mean, uh, because this is when he's going to get the word. Oh. Right. What happens immediately before Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed by God is that Abraham brings bread and wine and feeds the angels, angels. were coming to visit. So Abraham then goes to God. We're going to look at those verses a little later cuz you're right cuz the language of justice and righteousness are throughout Abraham's conversation and dialogue with God. Wow. So there's this strange mysterious interlude breaking into the narrative of someone we've never heard of who who is a priest of the God Most High and a king of Shalem, the king of peace. And that's another reason why it's related to Jesus, because he's mm-hmm. called the king of peace. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus is identified as Melchizedek in Christian writings, uh, uh, who essentially reminds Abram that, remember, you are blessed. You received a blessing. It's... You, you need to live up to this blessing you received, so that all the nations of the earth might be blessed through you. And then imagine that moment, like dissolving, and Abram turns. Oh, and here's the king of Sodom. Um, Abraham has been, in terms of breaches, in terms of covenants, been engaged in uh, alliances that are unholy, in order to rescue his family. And the king of Sodom now said to Abraham, look at the English, then look at the Hebrew. Let me have the people and keep the goods for yourself. Look at the Hebrew. Ten li ha-nefesh, v'harachush kach lach. Ten li ha-nefesh. What's nefesh also mean besides the souls? Soul. Give me your soul. And you can have all the stuff. Ha! Isn't that amazing?
3: Really?
0: Give me the soul, and you can have all the stuff. That's the king of Sodom's offer. <laughs> wow. I never... Like I said, it's like... It, it's it's good. always good to read the Torah again.
4: It's so archetypal again. Yes,
0: this, we are in archetypal territory. Um, now, nephesh also means um, uh, people, but... Um, but it's singular, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. It's a really interesting usage there, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, uh, You know, on the seventh day, it says in Exodus, God rested by yinnafash, and was re, meaning, and his soul was restored, renewed. So nefesh clearly means the, the soul, the, the self. The So give me your soul, and take the uh, goods. <laughs> It's it's Faustian, wouldn't we say? Very. <laughs> it's really old idea here. Are you willing to give up your soul for the goods? Ah. <sighs> so again, the morality tale weaves its way inevitably through all of these stories. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, Harimoti yadi el Adonai. I raise my hand to the Adonai. El Elyon Kone shamayim va'aretz. Most high, maker of heaven and earth. What did Malkiterek call God?
4: El Elyon.
0: God most high. Look at verse 19. God most high, maker of heaven and earth. It's almost as though Abraham's gotten this transmission or this like wake up. And he uses the exact same words that Tzedek used, and he also um, uh, uh, uses the word "hand" because um, who has given your foes into your hands? Blessed is in verse twenty, and blessed is God Most High who has given your foes into your hands. And then Abraham says, "I raise my hand to the Eternal Yudhevavhe God Most High, Maker of heaven and earth." that I would take nothing of yours, not even a thread or a sandal strap. You shall not say, I enriched Abram." Um, he says to the king of Sodom. And the word enriched, he'esharta, he'esharti, because asher is rich. Um, Judy Klitsch points out that ma'aser, which is in verse twenty, which means a tithe, a tenth, mm-hmm. maaser and heeshar are the same mm-hmm. letters, mm-hmm. used in different words. Mm-hmm. So again, the the way Torah works is that all the language is supposed to echo, and that's why an artful translation is a challenging thing to do into English when you have this much going on. Which, Karen. I
1: this is parashat mm-hmm. lech and melech has lech in it. Mm-hmm. And here's a you know, to you, to lach. I mean, there's just so much use mm-hmm. also of just oh. that syllable.
0: And it's, yes, that's it's right. Everywhere it sounds text. through it, doesn't mm-hmm. it? I'm, I'm, just, yeah. uh, I'm
4: just realizing how much we miss by just reading the English translation of all these words mean something, and how pedestrian the notes are. Um, he, as a traitor, he need not rely on plunder, and that's why he rejects the... Right. That's all it yeah.
0: is. Right. So, uh, pedestrian is a good word. Yeah. And uh, for much Torah commentary, though sometimes the commentary in here is, is really, for me, uh, illuminating, at other times it actually obfuscates, it actually yeah. like, leads us down what are, for me, dead ends of why we're reading this text. Right? This isn't a historical document. Mm-hmm. It's so obvious to me that we're in mythic territory here. Um, and yet, we're so determined to create a narrative that co- that's somehow coherent to us. That we will, we, <laughs> I'm saying me too. Because I've always skipped this chapter because I didn't get it. <laughs> right? So I could keep my narrative intact. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm, I'm like that too. We're all like that. That's why I'm having so much fun. Digging in here and yes most many people who study Torah and become really devoted to it find They just have to learn Hebrew They don't have to necessarily become fluent modern Hebrew speakers, but they just so they go take a course in biblical Hebrew or They go do something so because they have to because they realize how much they're missing Yeah, yeah. Hi Miriam
5: the repetition, These, this is how stories were orally told tremendous repetition sound, right. and so, right. words. And
0: we, so we know that rest- mas- any good storyteller, any good folktale repeats motifs over and over again, you know just think of Goldilocks and the, the three bears and it's got an uh, incantation sort of quality to a good story, that's what it's music, words. it's musical words, yeah so even after it was written down it was still transmitted orally, because literacy was not wide, widely uh, accomplished at that time. And one of the one of the um, importance of being a rabbi and a scribe was that you were literate, and you could keep this. You were keepers of the lore, right? So even after it was written down, it would be publicly declaimed in the market square, you know, and that sort of thing. So. Um, Yes, we assume it was oral first and then eventually written, but it was always meant to be heard. Always meant to be heard. Yeah. Um, So you shall not say, I enriched Abram. And then he goes on. Except what the troops have eaten and the share do the leaders who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their share. Excuse me. Um, So it seems to me that instead of thinking this as a kind of uh, like, why is this war story here? And what's it, is it a, you know, because I've never understood it. And maybe it's actually a crucial fulcrum in the story.
4: And we don't hear anything about the battles or how many people were killed or no. swords
0: or anything like that. No, that's right. That's right. It's not well, like those other accounts of battles where so and so many people died and so many this. Uh-huh. So um, let's see. Let's look in here in chapter 15 since we're reading it sequentially because Can
1: I, just
0: go back, just I want to you to it's... go. Yes, I want you to. To equal 30 and uh, equal 20. So right. it's 50-50. Right? Lech Lecha. Go forth. Or, again, for those new to this, when God says go forth, Lech Lecha to Abram, uh, though it's actually Lech and Lecha are the same letters, just used with different vowels. And it means get thee out or go forth, but it also means, in the Jewish tradition, if you translate it uh, sort of literally, it means "go to yourself."
1: Right. and it's been such an important motif in, mm-hmm. you know, in Jewish thinking about ourselves. And and if you're looking at the Torah scroll, it's so often, when you see that in the scroll, you know it's you less less. It, it's very uh, visual. And yet, when you think about 50-50, well, all of this is about justice and fairness. And I mean that's part of
0: what we're trying to parse out here. Is, Very nice. Is, is keeping things balanced and keeping things fair, keeping things just. And uh, the dean, right? It scales, the scales. The scales of judgment. Lech, lecha.
1: Tzedek, tzedek.
0: Tzedek, tzedek. Right, right. Balance. So what Karen's doing, which I want to point out to everybody, is... This, this is the art of homiletics, of giving a sermon, of expanding a teaching. Um, and so it would be beautiful on the, uh, someone else look at that, on this Shabbat of Lech Lecha for Karen to get up and shul, as rabbis and, and Jews have been doing for thousands of years, and go on an excursion that plays with the words and expands on the meaning of the story, and so it's just, that's what we're doing here. That is not a diversion. That is Torah study. That's, that's the, that is the sort of, I call it the, the, the sacred game we're playing. Because it has rules. It's a game. It's like, a, a, in a way, but it's for the purpose of amplifying and drawing out new meanings and understanding. So thank you. Feel free to keep talking about it if you want. So so
4: why accept what the troops have eaten and the share do the leaders? Because that's why not, was that an exception?
0: Because he didn't want to speak for the other people who oh, had okay. been involved in this rescue operation. Okay. So yeah, they get to do what they want with their share. But I've just talked to Malkitzetek, okay, who reminded me <laughs> that I have to be an ivri. I have to set myself apart from the ordinary uh, uh, business of say warfare, or alliances, or and certainly not with the king of Sodom, who's approaching me saying, "Give me your soul, and you can have all the stuff." Mm-hmm. That line is incredible, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Just
4: just one other small thing, but please. Um, as part of this soul being a mythological story, there's the placing so that he gets his blessing in a sacred grove by the oak of Mora. Mm-hmm. And then the oaks of Mamre get repeated here, yeah, the oak, and okay. he's at that yeah. Mamre when Melchizedek, Melchizedek appears, and when he decides to go after Lot. So, and then again, that's where he hears about having Isaac in the next parasha. Right. However. So it's also, and when we, when he goes into Egypt, which is the dark place, is when the thing happens with Sarah. So it's also being there's this other like holding you geographically, as you read this mythic tale. Does that, that that's, yes, uh, the oak grove of, of Mamre of near Hebron? Towns.
0: Yeah, that oak grove is really important. It comes up a bunch of times in the stories of Abraham and Sarah, and, uh,
4: and at least up to here. When it does, is when he's had his most righteous, he's with God.
0: Mm-hmm. In chapter 18, he will be sitting in the oak grove of Mamre when he sees God and again. Mm-hmm. Yes.
4: I just wanted to add something to
3: Karen's. Um, Lamed, I think, also is used as the middle letter, because Mem is the middle letter of the alphabet, but it has a different function, because it's one of the three mothers, you know? Mm-hmm. So even so, that symmetry there, that it's 50-50, but it's also like the middle. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think everything's pointing to it being that
2: middle spot.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bruria.
2: Back uh, to uh, the Hebrew. Lech lecha. Means go for yourself.
0: Exactly. It's go for yourself. Or go lecha, I mean four or two. Yes, but it also mean go for a purpose. That's right. And. That's right. L'cha, go for a purpose for yourself, which is how Rashi interprets it, how the classic interpretation, which means go for your own benefit and growth. Right? That's, that's, that's right, Burya, and that's, that's the classic Rashi take on it, yeah. Thank you. Um, I think, uh, let's look on a little farther, but then I want to make sure to get to the next episode with Sodom and Gomorrah so we can hear the echoes of Malki in that version. But let's spend a little time.
1: That's next
0: week. It is next week. Somebody, You might want to talk about it? <laughs> All right, let's just go on. OK, so everybody, I'm leaving for Israel. <clears throat> On Sunday night, I'm leading a group from, um, uh, uh, from the synagogue, and we're going to go to all these places, <laughs> figuratively and literally, which is, again, allow me a, a tiny excursion. Um, this is why the Land of Israel for the Jewish people isn't just a place, right? And why, when the Zionist movement in the late 19th century was early considering where to go and the British Empire offered them, well, you could go to Uganda, Uh you know, why that was like a lead balloon at the Zionist Congress, right? Because this is our, not just our homeland, but the land of our, our, souls, right, the landscape of our souls, and so it's hard to describe that to people who aren't immersed in it and then of course there's great confusion that ensues because physical places get imbued with spiritual power but then you sell your soul in order to keep the place so it's really complicated but um, and it's really complicated, and it's my homeland. right? So I'm going to be walking around these places. And the, it's quite a challenge not to get confused, um, to, to try to keep straight all that stuff. But uh, for folks who don't get that about where, how Jewish identity and this landscape is in, inextricably entwined, it's, it's impossible to explain. Um, uh, I think the best comparison might be, and it happens a lot, is that this is what we do as human beings, and when Native Americans were forced off their land, they died on the Trail of Tears because their, their identity, their self sense of self there, was completely inextricably entwined in the landscape and the stories about the place that animate their whole life. And it's the same for us. One of the wonders of Jewish history is that we managed to sanctify our stories in a way that allowed us to survive an exile uprooted from our land. So I'm going. Uh, with all the complications and the impossibilities of it, it's my homeland. Um, and uh, So uh, I'll be gone Sunday night, and I won't be back for a couple of weeks, so Karen is gonna convene next week. Please come.
1: We're gonna talk about Sodom and Gomorrah.
0: Oh, okay. Then we won't go there. Um, but so you, we're all primed for that. About will not the will not the um, king. Uh, will, how does what does Abraham say to to God when God says I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Not
1: the one of justice deal
0: justly. With the... Right. I'm just. Yeah. Um, Must not the judge of all the earth do justly? That's what's going to happen in that story. Uh, uh, And that's right before... Well, I'll let Karen do all that next time. Let's go on with chapter...
4: And I'm doing the week after.
0: And Gail is doing Chayis Sarah the week after, The Life of Sarah. So thank you. So we'll continue. I think we're well-primed for for uh, continuing in, in amazing directions. So then let's go continue with just Lech Lachan, chapter 15, because there's a lot of in- interesting connections that happen here. After these things, achar hadvarim ha'ele. Um, Torah commentators never ignore it when it says, and after these things. Because it implies that what just happened is important to what's going to happen next, right? Where do we hear it next? We hear it uh, when God calls, um, next week's portion, when God calls Abraham to take his son, his only son. says, now after these things, the previous stuff that had happened, um, God said to Abram...
4: It's like we're watching our series on Netflix previously. That's right.
0: (laughs) But what it wants you to do most basically is connect what's going to happen now to what just happened. Okay? Uh, The word of the Lord, the word of the Eternal, came to Abram in a vision. Saying. So now, where are we? We're in the land of visions, everybody it's so easy for me and i know for most other readers to uh, to start thinking oh now god's talking to abram right and just but not only were we in a mythic landscape to begin with but now abram's having a vision okay this is not an ordinary waking reality okay is this the first vision this is this is the first vision yeah Saying, Al Tira Avram, have no fear, Abram. I am giving you lach. Okay, the, t- Hebrews, the English isn't going to do it. Hmm. Magainlach scharcha harbei ma'od. I am giving you an abundant reward as a gift. Okay, let's look at the Hebrew.
2: Hmm.
0: Al Tira Avram, do not fear, Abraham. Anochi magen lach. Uh, magen Abraham. That's in the Amidah. Shield of Abraham. Right? That's where it comes from. Uh, but if you look back at Malkitsedek's words in verse 20, uvaruch el-Elyon asher migen sarecha, who has delivered your foes into your hands. So the word migen, And magen have to do with protection and shielding. Mm -hmm. And it turns out, according to Judy Klitzner, uh, these are the only two times we hear the word magen anywhere in in Genesis. Now, here's where you know that word from. The Israeli army was originally called the Haganah. Mm
4: -hmm.
0: Haganah means to protect. Um, So... The magen is is the verb protect. Haganah is the noun, you know, the protectors or the protection. Mm-hmm.
1: Um sorry, to tigan, like to garden?
0: I never thought about that. I don't know. <clears throat> um, the only thing I I to look that up. So the words of Tzedek immediately echo. The words of God in this vision immediately echo Malchitetek's message to Abram, who says, I will protect you. Scharcha, your, I will sah- sah- scharcha. is your reward. Your, so Abraham has just, Abraham has just um, uh, uh, declined stuff." the worldly reward, exactly, in a return for his soul, now immediately he has a vision contiguous to Melchizedek's message that there's a different kind of protection and a different kind of reward that he will receive by being this Ivri, by being this one who goes, goes for goes on this spiritual quest. Does that make sense, everybody, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really interesting connection. And so
4: Magen, also Magen David.
0: Magen David, <laughs> right? The Magen David is the shield, n- David. the shield of David, right? Magen David, and the Magen David is the six pointed star, in modern parlance, known as the Magen. Magen. You know, when you see Magen David Adom, which is the Jewish Red Cross, it's actually the Jewish Jewish. Okay. It's the Jewish red star, and it's called Magendavi, the, sh- the shield or protection of David. Right. Thank you. Um, so now, it's almost as though now that Abraham rose to the test of the king of Sodom approaching him with the offer, he is now in a position, or he is now spiritually prepared, or is in an, an incredible open space to receive this vision, which is that God's saying there's a different kind of reward and a different kind of protection, a different kind of covenant, right? Not the covenant of allies and war, but a covenant with the Creator, with God the Most High. And that covenant, if we have to remember to keep our eyes on the ball. A covenant is a contract. In other words, it's a two-way street. This is never an unqualified promise from God. The children of Israel will never merit living in the land unless they fulfill the injunction to create, create a society of tzedakah and mishpat, of righteousness and justice. So the calling isn't, okay, you have won our grand prize. You know, you passed the test and you won our grand prize. You have won the grand prize, but the grand prize is you now get to pursue the spiritual vision of what it means to be a fulfilled human being. And if you fall away from this, then you don't get the reward. The the reward's contingent on your going on this journey. Uh, And we are all gonna fall away and restore ourselves and fall away and restore. Maybe even Abraham in this story is getting waylaid and then having to re- re- rediscover the, the blessing that he's given at the beginning. And fortunately, in the Torah, it's not neutral. The, the Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, wants us to succeed on this path, right? And therefore, sends malki Tzedek along at the moment of crisis to remind, you know, that's how I... It's not a, neutral, it's not a morally neutral... Universe, not in the Torah, and never in, Jew- in Judaism. Therefore, Judaism does not d- does never deals with the universe as though it was morally neutral. I don't know what the reality is, whatever reality is, <laughs> but that's not how we play, right? This is our story, um, and it brings a new vision into human affairs, a vision that. The treatment of human beings is a universal concept, not one based on your position of power. And the Torah is going to play that out over and over and over again, whether it's- Repeat that Yes. Why, what did I say? Help me.
4: <laughs>
0: Seriously. The, in Judaism, the universe is not neutral. Um, and uh, is on the side of morality and justice and righteousness and wants us human beings to fulfill that divine nature that inheres within us because we're made in the image of God. Um, And so that our moral behavior matters in Judaism. It matters on a universal level that uh, when... I said it best the first time. We'll have to listen to
4: this. (laughs) (laughs) But the treatment of people...
0: Right. The treatment of human beings is a universal issue. It comes from God.
4: And not based
0: on... Not based on your own position of status. And when Pharaoh falls, it's because Pharaoh does not recognize this. And when empires fall, it's because... They have sold their soul for stuff. Is
3: right. yeah. it so appropriate today? Oh, yeah. it, oh. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah.
0: It's always been appropriate. That's why we're still here. You know, that's, it's, it's always true.
5: You also said we, that we're continually tested and we have to sort of renew this vision.
0: Right, continually. Um, and Judaism, I said, Judaism brings this idea to the world that, uh, that morality is not contingent, that, that how you're treated is not contingent on your status, but on your essence. And that uh, that's the way God, the universe, intends it to be. And our job is to fulfill that divine plan. The divine plan. Yeah.
4: So, one more comment on the Torah's insistence on the difficulties of this is I looked at the end of this parsha, which ends with the circumcision of Abraham's whole household. Mm-hmm. It began by having Shechem.
0: Oh, in the opening the blessing. oh right, where, where. circumcision is really, going to be used for evil.
4: That's right. So, it, it really is intentional. I hadn't realized what the... That's really interesting. So So it's saying, in the midst of all of this conversation about justice and the difficulties and all of that, one reminder of what will yet come with with Abraham's heirs.
0: That's right. That's right. They will misuse. They will confuse the... Circumcision is supposed to be a physical mark on the male body that represents the covenant with the creator. Right. Right? Uh, That... uh, um, we devote ourselves to, you know, with that that men with their you know rod and staff and their generative organ and their testosterone devote themselves to what? Not to the accumulation of ruchush of property, but to the enactment of justice. That's absolutely right. That's what the circumcision represents, um, and yet. Shortly thereafter, the circumcision is used as a tool to, uh, of revenge and trickery. And
2: dysfunction.
0: Yeah, yeah. Huh. People are amazing. We can make anything into a... Yeah, but
4: I think it's just fascinating the way they, they wrote it. There's just yes, no thank you. in here. Thank you.
0: <laughs> now, well, let's go on for as long as time we have and see what happens next. So... Abrams having this vision and says to God, Adonai Elohim, what can you give me when I am going to die childless, and the heir to my household is Damasek Eliezer, is Eliezer from Damascus, his servant. And Abram added, Look, to me you have given no offspring, and one of my servants is my heir. But the Eternal One's word to him was, that one shall not be your heir. Rather, one who comes from your own body, he shall be your heir. This is interesting, huh? Um, So now we're getting into one of the other um, main motifs of the book of Genesis, which is that those who seem to be childless. God generates life through them, despite their their feeling like they can never be givers of life. And I didn't explore this one too much. I was looking at this other chapter, and I haven't thought it through too much, but uh, uh, there's another line I want to get to. Uh, So let's keep going. Taking him outside, God said, Turn your gaze toward the heavens and count the stars, if you can count them. And God promised, uh, and God said to him, so shall be your seed. And then again, a hard line to translate. Verse 6. And he put his trust in the Eternal, who reckoned that as loyalty in him. Okay. Look at the Hebrew. Vehemin Baronai. And Abraham had faith in God. How do we translate this line? Um, who and thought and, and considered him to be righteous. I don't know how to translate this line, except that the word stedaka. We know that word, tzedakah. Righteousness is repeated here right after the visitor whose name was Malkit Tzedek. So trusted in God's righteousness? I don't even know how to translate this, but the, the fact that tzedakah is mentioned here uh, and we don't know how to translate it is very interesting. Yomer Elav, verse 7, saying to him, and this is where Abraham's life is again a, a kind of pre, pre uh, view of the Israelites. Right. Ani Adonai Asher Hotse Tiha Me Kastim. I am Yodhabh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, which when we get to Mount Sinai mm-hmm. um, is I am Yodhai who brought you out of Egypt the land house of bondage. La lecha et hazot, as an inherit to give you this land, as an inheritance, and then this mysterious, um, uh, which we're not going to have time for, uh, a sacrifice known as the covenant between the pieces, um, happens. But what I want to show you in this just the last minutes is I want you to go, um, for a moment. Let me find the page. Uh, Let's go to Book of Exodus, chapter 19. It's on page 473. And we're at Mount Sinai. This is it. In verse 3, it says, The Eternal One called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and declare to the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Now then, if you will obey me faithfully and keep my covenant, my breed, you shall be, remember this is if, if, then you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Indeed, all the earth is mine. But if you do this, you will be to me Mamlechet Kohanim Vigoi Kadosh, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Uh, so, first of all, Malkitzerek, the king of Shalem, is both a king and a priest. Which, what? You know, there are never kings who are also priests until the time of the Maccabee, the, the House of Ephesians, when uh, the king installs himself as high priest. And it says in the Mishnah during Sukkot that everyone threw their etrogs and lulavs at him and pelted him. Right? He was despised the king doesn't become the high priest. That is the consolidation. We need to
4: stock up on Lulavs and
0: huh. That is the... The king, in, the king in Judaism is precisely not the high priest because, the, because there's only one king who is the holy one, right? Human beings are not divine. Uh, and so... But there's Melchizedek, who completely, bizarrely, is identified as both a king and a priest. And now, in this one sentence Judy Klitzner points out, the, 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 the uh, children of Israel told they could become a kingdom of priests mm. if they fulfill this covenant. So there is some, for me, apogee, some apex of spiritual accomplishment that we humans are capable of, where, where we can totally align ourselves in body and soul with the a divine will, right? And that is what's happening at Mount Sinai. That's the moment when the whole people is saying, if you enter this covenant, this is your aspiration. You can become this. It's a possibility. And it made me think about, thanks, to, thanks again to Judy Klitzner, that we, the only other time in the Torah where priest and king are put together is in that little meeting with Abraham. And maybe that's also presaging the whole children of Israel standing at Mount Sinai. And what's the mission? Uh, I won't give you my soul in order to have all the stuff. Right. Right, My soul is for another purpose. My being, my essence. Stuff is ancillary. That's not, the game isn't as the bumper sticker says, whoever dies with the most stuff wins. That's the bumper sticker. That is not the Torah. On the contrary. So uh, I just thought that connection was really beautiful because that line is so important. If you keep the covenant, you will be a nation, a, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation to me. Um, Okay, that's where I want to stop today. Thank you all for taking the journey.
2: Thank you.